Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Elizabeth Norman, and in this episode, what was it like when a young school teacher from Connecticut arrived to teach in a rough frontier school in 1850? Eastern Connecticut State University professor Allison Speicher tells us why the famous Catherine Beecher, sister of Harry Beecher Stowe, was so driven to send New England school teachers to the West. And what the teachers encountered when they arrived is, well, a great story. This lecture was recorded February 21st, 2017 at the University of Hartford as part of the President's College in Connecticut Explored's Connecticut's in the American West lecture series. I'm an English professor at Eastern Connecticut State. And I got into Catherine Beecher by way of her sister, like many literary scholars do, and quickly found I liked her better than the more famous Beecher sister. I work in the history of American education, 19th century American lit, and children's lit. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Beecher in case she's not entirely familiar to you, uh, and her work creating the National Board of Popular Education, as well as some context in terms of the educational landscape of her time, right? What was going on in public schools? Then I'm going to talk a little bit about how the board worked, right? What were its operations like? Who these teachers were? And what they experienced when they got to their Western teaching placements? And throughout, I'm going to draw on a really rich repository you all had access to right here in Hartford uh, at the Connecticut Historical Society, where the letters home written by the teachers who were sent to the West are housed. They have hundreds of them. Most people in the 19th century would have known a little bit about Catherine Beecher's family. Really, America's most famous family of the 19th century. I'd say a comparison to the Kennedys is a pretty good um, way of gauging how well-known these people were as a family. I've also seen scholars make one to the Kardashians. I find that a little less flattering for the Beecher family. <laughs> as Lyman Beecher Stowe, Harry Beecher Stowe's grandson, explained in the book he wrote about his ancestors, Saints, Sinners, and Beechers, quote, there was never a Beecher who was pious or conventional enough to qualify as a saint, and yet they could hardly be confused with sinners, since they were always pursuing them with a sharp stick. <laughs> he continues, to their admirers, they were noble humanitarians. To their enemies, they were conceited and high-handed meddlers. So really divided public opinion on this famous family, a family of ministers, a family with major sway on the moral compass of the United States at this time. And even among this famous but not entirely beloved family, Catherine Beecher stands out as a tricky figure to think about. Uh, she's a conundrum for historians, particularly feminist historians. She was a woman who was outspoken about how women shouldn't be outspoken. Uh, she was an acknowledged expert on domestic management and motherhood, but she was a childless spinster. She was a zealous advocate of women becoming teachers, but she hated teaching herself. She wanted to raise the social position of women, but sometimes she expressed opposition to women's suffrage. In some ways, her understanding of her world was really, really keen. She's right, of course, that teaching would become a profession for women and that it would change gender roles in the United States. But in other ways, her vision from the 21st century vantage point is fundamentally flawed. She's a xenophobe, for example. She really fears Catholic immigration and the threat that Catholics present to the America she wants to imagine. She conceived of her field of action on a national scale, 
but ultimately she wanted to make the nation look like her own New England family. She managed to be, from our perspective, both a conservative and a radical, which is why it's really hard to know what to do with her from a 21st century point of view, which I think makes her a really rich research area. In her own lifetime, she was incredibly famous, nearly as famous as her sister. Uh, as the author of 33 books about education, religion, domestic life, and health. Uh, so a really wide range of topics. Uh, the most famous of which was her 1841 book, A Treatise on Domestic Economy. Right, a famous housekeeping manual. Uh, she's also widely known as a pioneering educator, an outspoken advocate for women's education. Uh, and she herself founded three advanced schools for women, schools offering high school or college level instruction to young women. Of course, one of them's here in Hartford, Hartford Female Seminary, uh, the Western Female Institute in Ohio, and Milwaukee Female College in Wisconsin. So she's busy. Uh, she had a full, long life. Uh, but her most significant contribution to the history of education was not any single school she created, but the instrumental role she played in making teaching a profession for women. So one of Beecher's earliest writings on this subject was her 1829 publication, Suggestions Respecting Improvements in Education. Uh, and she always likes to frame these polemic arguments as suggestions. Here are some ideas I might have. Uh, but once you read the, the text itself, the tone is um, more than suggesting. Um, she suggested that teaching should become a profession for women to solve two major social problems. The fact that many teachers were unfit to be teachers because they had very little training, they weren't invested in the career, people who had no real intellectual or pedagogical training to fit them for this role. So she thinks we can solve that by training women to do it, right? If this isn't a job men want to take seriously and be trained for because it doesn't pay and offer the prestige of things like going into the ministry or becoming a doctor or a lawyer, well, let women do it. It'll be prestigious enough for them. And secondly, she wanted to make it easier for women to support themselves in a period where women of the middle class are really not supposed to be, according to gender rules, working outside the home, right? She contends that because women don't have a profession they can pursue, they're forced into marriages that may not be the best marriages because the only way for a woman to not, you know, starve if she doesn't have a father or uncle or some other male relative to provide for her is to get married, right? And so her argument is, this is going to benefit women, this is going to benefit families, everybody is going to reap benefits from this very simple solution of taking women who currently do not have employment and putting them into this incredibly important work. Because women are already nurturing children within the home, right, because mothering takes on such an important role in the 19th century family, it seemed reasonable to people like Beecher that women could enter the classroom. Because the school is a lot like a home. So women can do this, right? And it's not a coincidence that the first teaching jobs women get in the United States are for the youngest students. Uh, it takes much longer for women to get into high school teaching and to college teaching in large numbers. Now, historians debate how much of this movement of women into teaching is about this essentialist idea that women are natural nurturers and how much it has to do with money. Uh, because the average female teacher made between a third and a half what her male counterpart made. The common school system at this time is rapidly expanding. An absurd percentage of the U.S. population is under the age of 10. So schools are growing, and how are they going to grow them and not actually have to ask people for more tax dollars? Pay the teachers less. 
So as one of my history of education mentors like to say, the public school system from the beginning was built on the back of underpaid women. But Beecher didn't see this as just good for schools. Beecher saw this as good for women too. Essentially, you could still be a teacher and a woman. Nothing was going to be compromised, right? So everybody wins. She says, by experience and testimony, that's a quote, women are known to be, quote, the best as well as the cheapest guardian and teacher of childhood in the school as well as the nursery. So she's articulating arguments that get taken up by a lot of her contemporaries. But she puts a more, I think, feminist twist on these arguments because when people like Horace Mann and Henry Barnard were arguing for women to enter the profession of teaching, they were mostly thinking about how it was going to be really useful for the school system. Beecher is thinking about the women and how they're going to have a really different ability to change America than they ever had before. Right? So she says, this is from her 1945 publication, The Duty of American Women to Their Country. More on that later. The title is awesome. Uh, this is the way in which a profession is to be created for women. A profession as honorable and as lucrative for her as the legal, medical, and theological are for men. This is the way in which thousands of intelligent and respectable women who toil for a pittance scarcely sufficient to sustain life are to be relieved and elevated. Right? So Beecher sees this as a road for significantly more female independence. And that's why it's not a coincidence that somebody who started multiple advanced schools for girls takes this position. Because the idea that women could become teachers suddenly makes educating girls really important. Right? Suddenly, it could pay off to educate your daughter because she can bring money into your household by turning that education into employment in a way she couldn't before she could enter this particular profession. Right? So this really helps to contribute to elevating the average educational level of American women, knowing that there might be something they could do with it um, beyond using it in their domestic avocations. The duty of American women to their expanding country. Beecher is deeply supportive of women becoming teachers, and she's thinking about where this work should be done. She's thinking about where women teachers are most needed. And she starts to think of the West, right? She's, of course, she's a native of Connecticut, but her family moves to Cincinnati, and she goes with them. Beecher believed an alarming number of children were growing up in the West where they weren't getting schooled at all. That there was just an entire, two million is the number she gives. There are two million children without schools. Often she says West, she means what we would call the Midwest most of the time. Um, she did send some teachers to Oregon, so occasionally the really far West, but mostly Illinois, Indiana, Michigan. Given the rising number of immigrants and the rapid expansion of the states in the West, Beecher felt that the moral fiber of America was threatened, and she sought to bring the values of her family, values she identified with New England, to the West. And that's why this pamphlet is called The Duty of American Women to Their Country. Right? She wants these women to think on a national scale. Right? You're growing up in Connecticut, and yes, you can go teach in your local school, and that's great. Right? People in Connecticut are learning to read with or without you. Right? They don't desperately need you. But what about those two million children in the Midwest? They need you really badly. Right? It's your duty to go and address the fact that all of these children are going unschooled. So here's when she starts doing her little statistical move. In a population of 14 millions, 
we find one million adults who cannot read and write, uh, which to a Beecher growing up in this Protestant New England place is unthinkably high rate of illiteracy. Two millions of children without schools. In a few years then, if these children come on the stage with their present neglect, we shall have three millions of adults managing our state and national affairs who cannot even read the Constitution they swear to support, nor a word in the Bible or in any newspaper or book. Look at the West where our dangers from foreign immigration are the greatest, and which by its unparalleled increase is soon to hold the scepter of power. The future of this country is in the West, and the West is ignorant in Catherine Beecher's viewpoint and this needs to be fixed, right? And this is a classic argument for the creation of public schools, right? That in a democracy where everyone can vote, well, at this time period, every white man who owns a property, and then later every white man uh, can vote, they need to be able to, you know, do that intelligently. And that requires widespread education, right? Beecher, throughout this pamphlet, paints a really bleak picture of schooling in the West. Uh, she really gives a ton of detail describing these falling down buildings, uh, she describes all the teachers that they do have as vulgar and obscene, and she gives these awful examples of why the people who are currently working there are unfit. And this brings her to her rallying cry uh, toward the end of the document. Quote, my countrywomen, what is before us? What awful forebodings arise? Intelligence and virtue are only safeguards. And yet this mass of ignorance among us and hundreds of thousands of ignorant foreigners being yearly added to augment our danger. I mean, so this is telling you how she's conceiving of this project. She truly believes that the fate of the nation is in the hands of these New England school teachers that she's going to send to the West. And we can see here some of her, of course, problematic anti-Catholic sentiments, uh, because the peril here is as much about the fact that America is starting to look not like the Beechers as it is about any lack of schooling. Right? It's a certain kind of schooling that Catherine Beecher has in mind, um, which becomes clear when you look at how she trained the teachers that she sent to the West. Founding the National Board of Popular Education. To help American women do their duty, she starts working on founding the National Board. She wants to take funds and teachers from the East and ship them to the West, right? That's the essential premise. Lots of well-educated young women in New England looking for things to do with their lives. Lots of uneducated children in the West pining away for teachers. Let's match them up. So she starts this organization to bring New England virtues to the West. Uh, as her biographer, Catherine Kitschlar, puts it, quote, the united effort of the women of the East combined with the moral influence of the women of the West would create homogenous national institutions Catherine asserted, the family, the school, and the social morality upon which these institutions were based would everywhere be similar. Sectional and ethnic diversities would give way to national unity as the influence of women increased." End quote. Right? So essentially she's picturing like a network of mothers and teachers across the nation who have shared values who are going to keep the country together. And of course, the threat here isn't just immigration. Remember that she's putting this together in the 1840s, right? We're 20 years away from, less than 20 years away from civil war, right? So this idea that like we have to find some way to bond the people of our nation is in fact a very pressing concern for many people other than Catherine Beecher. Beecher saw these schools as extensions of the church, as places where Protestant values can be taught alongside basic literacy and arithmetic. 
So to this end, she organizes the National Board of Popular Education with the help of her brother-in-law, Calvin Stowe, who, in addition to being a minister and theological professor, was also a major common school reformer in the Midwest, and William Slade, who was the former governor of Vermont. She felt like she needed Slade's help for a number of reasons. One is her, her thinking about gender. Right? Well, she is completely the mastermind behind this entire thing. She's not entirely comfortable being visibly the mastermind of this entire project. Right? It, it, it lends respectability to the project for there to be a male leader who is kind of the voice and the face of this effort, which is why she spends a lot of time thinking about what man to recruit to kind of serve by her side. And this is from a letter she wrote to William Slade when she was trying to convince him to come aboard. Quote, all that is wanting to the full operation of this project is a leader. For this purpose, a person is demanded of high character and position, a civilian rather than a clergyman, a man of liberal and philanthropic views who can take the energies and resources that will be put at his command, choose his own position, arrange his plans, and be in fact the leader and manager of the whole. And it's interesting, too, that she wants a civilian rather than a clergyman, right? Because in some ways, given the, the Protestant ethos of this project, it would make perfect sense to get a minister to head this up. And she certainly knew a fair few, you know, her seven brothers, her brother-in-law, her father. So she had no lack of available clergymen to ask to be involved in this. But I think this speaks to the fact that she sees these as ultimately non-sectarian Protestant schools. Right? And by picking a minister attached to any one denomination, it would make it seem like it was a project of that denomination. In reality, they drew teachers from five different uh, evangelical denominations. So her first task, once she gets Slade attached to the program, is to raise money and awareness. Right? This is going to take a lot of money. Uh, they estimated that they could educate and send a teacher to the West for $100. So her first task is to kind of get people on board. And she does this via newspaper and speaking campaigns. Uh, she sends circulars and letters to county newspapers and small town clergymen, both within the East Coast, right, soliciting funds and teachers, and within the West, asking them, would you want somebody? Is this something you'd be interested in? Would you get behind this program? To raise funds, she organizes local groups of church women at every place she visits. And she basically, like, she'd come to your town, she'd organize this group of church women, and then she'd say, if you guys want to contribute, come up with $100, and you guys can be responsible for one teacher. She had the support of a lot of the most important educational leaders of the day. Horace Mann, who's now known as the father of public education, was on board with this plan. Henry Barnard, Connecticut's Horace Mann, was on board with this project. And she was a tireless public speaker. This is one of the funny things about her, right? Women shouldn't speak out, except when I do my world tour. Uh, by the spring of 1846, she'd spoken in most of the major cities on the East Coast, in a typical five-week period, she spoke in Pittsburgh, Baltimore, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Troy, Albany, and Hartford. Five weeks. 19th century transportation. That's, that's serious business. Uh, while Beecher was busy getting everything together in the East, including training the new candidates, uh, Slade traveled to the West to figure out where to place the, the teachers and to organize local school com committees, right, because... If these women are truly going to go into communities where there aren't schools, then there's going to be no one to administer the school once the teacher shows up. Right? So he's trying to create some sort of infrastructure to support these women once they get out there. Over the course of about a decade, the board ended up sending 600 teachers from the east to the west, which is, I think, a really substantial 
um, an impressive number. Two-thirds of these women never came home. They chose to live the rest of their lives in the West. Who were these teachers? I want to focus more on the teachers themselves and what their experiences were like, because I think the letters that they sent home are just such incredibly rich resources for figuring out what their experience is like. So I want to give you some sense of their motives, their experiences, and then how they themselves describe them. You had to be an evangelical Protestant to sign on. And you had to be very clear about your religious motives for wanting to do this. In fact, each woman, as part of her application, completed an essay assignment explaining her views on regeneration and salvation. This was like the writing sample. In their application, the applicants routinely use the phrase, instruments of doing good. Shows up again and again. This is telling you something about how these teachers saw themselves, right, as instruments in the hands of God. So, like, they're not doing this because they're, you know, asserting themselves and, and going out and finding their independence. Though, of course, they ended up doing exactly that. They're doing this because they're doing God's work. They also routinely refer to the West as the, quote, field of usefulness. Another phrase that shows up again and again. A place where they can contribute to society more meaningfully than they could in their Eastern hometowns. Each applicant was also asked to share her residence, age, amount of education, and the subject she felt comfortable teaching. She was also requested to send testimonials, often from ministers and educators, speaking to her history, education, and character. This is one of the early recruitment materials from 1848. I took this from the Boston Recorder, but they published these in a ton of publications. Uh, if you look in 19th century databases, you'll find the same article, you know, 15 times, because they published this in every newspaper they could. Quote, competent knowledge, good sense, sound discretion, decided piety, a strong desire to do good, a cheerful, hopeful spirit, and patient energy are qualifications indispensable for the service to which the teachers are invited. Especially important do we regard the qualification of active, efficient piety. No qualities or combination of qualities can make up for the want of it. Right, so this is telling you something about their priorities. Competent knowledge is first. Give them credit for that. Um, but the rest of these are character traits, right? They're looking for a certain kind of woman, right? Somebody who's going to use her piety to connect her with her students and to increase that in the community she comes into. Of course, while religious motives were important to so many of these teachers, there were plenty of other reasons to do this besides glorifying God, uh, not the least of which is supporting yourself. This is in a letter from one of the applicants, uh, Agnes Golding, who is from Phillipston, Massachusetts. And she writes, teaching at the West is a subject that has occupied many hours of thought and interest to me for two reasons. First, New England seems to be flooded with teachers. Therefore, there is not much probability of being the instrument of doing good here as at the West, right? There it is, the instrument of doing good. Second, it was to be of equal, if not greater, importance that the right motives, right principles should be installed in the minds of the youth there is here. And if I could be the means of leading any on the right path, I would like to do it there. Right? It seems to me that that economic motive is only thinly veiled in this flooded with teachers thing. Right? This sounds like I can't get a job in Massachusetts. Um, uh, and of course, she also frames this in the religious sense. Right? But both motives seem important to her. And when we look at her later letters, we'll see both of these things coming out. 
In their applications, two-thirds of the teachers mentioned that they're already on their own, supporting themselves out of necessity. Most of them needed to work. Half of these women had already lost one or both of their parents, which explains a lot about their financial situations. Others were older women. Some of them were career teachers. A lot of the teachers had experience teaching in New England before they ever went to the West. Some of them were seeking adventure for all those kind of romanticized reasons people went to the West in general in the 19th century, right? Going to the frontier sounded fun. And some of them sought a higher salary, right? Because, because New England is flooded with teachers, teachers don't get paid very much here. Two-thirds of the recruits already had taught for three or more years, which is a pretty significant length of time of teaching in the 19th century, and that a lot of people did teaching very briefly because it wasn't a highly respected profession, right? These women are already really committed to teaching in a way many people in the 19th century were not. They're also older than the average teacher in the 19th century. Their median age when they left for the West is 25, which is telling you something about their marital prospects. They're verging on old maiddom. Average beginning teacher in antebellum America was 15 years old. <laughs> which seems hard to believe, I think, from a 21st century perspective. But that tells you that these women have much more life experience and teaching experience than the average American teacher at this time period. They're drawing mainly from New England in the Northeast. I find the Ohio and Michigan numbers interesting because they also sent teachers to Ohio and Michigan. So those are two states that were both where teachers came from and where teachers went to. This is certainly not um, representative of all the teachers. This is from Polly Boltz Kaufman's really wonderful book, Women Teachers on the Frontier. It's really the only book on the National Board of Popular Education. As I mentioned earlier, they sent about 600 teachers out. Kaufman was only able to track down 203, which is impressive for a historian, but that still is only a third of the total number of teachers that ever worked for the board. But I do think they give you a really strong sense of where these women are from. So once the teachers volunteered, they traveled to Hartford to be trained. They were trained in disciplinary and instructional methods. They were trained in how to keep control of a classroom and, of course, how to deliver content. They also reviewed the content, which made a lot of sense given that many of these women are perhaps a little removed from their own education. Right? So they reviewed composition, spelling, music, algebra, and physiology. It was really important to train these teachers in discipline because that, as you might imagine, was one of the major areas of pushback against the female teacher. When women were first getting teaching jobs, people were worried that they wouldn't be able to discipline the boys. And that was something that slowly but surely um, experience taught people was false, despite the fact that at this time it was perfectly legal to go to school at a common school to age 21. These young women proved that they could handle it. And actually, often better than male teachers, one of the chapters in my book looks at violence in 19th century schools and I found that in a lot of these stories the violence in the school only happens when there's a male teacher because the young men see the male teacher as a challenge but when it's a young lady they behave because gender norm says you can't treat a girl poorly. Go west young teacher. They sent teachers out twice a year during the peak years of the board after fall and spring institutes. The women would travel together as far as they could at the expense of the board, but after the early parts of the journey, each woman would be on her own, right? The journey typically took two to four weeks, depending on how far the woman was going, uh, by train, boat, stagecoach, and wagon. 
And often Governor Slade would actually escort the young women to like a point in the West where he would then send them out. Uh, once she arrived where she was going, she was on her own. Uh, the board really took no responsibility for what happened to teachers when they got there. And they say this frankly in their recruitment materials. After they arrive at the places of their destination, the board does not hold itself responsible. It obtains applications embracing specific offers of compensation from what it deems respectable and responsible sources, and having defrayed the expense of the teachers to the places of their destination, trust to their energy, prudence, and capacity as instructors to secure the confidence and support of those to whom they are sent. Uh, this is actually a major cause of contention between Beecher and Slade, because Beecher later accused Slade of essentially like abandoning these women in random Midwestern communities with no means of support. She later raises a small fund and goes to the West herself, basically offering succor to these young women who find themselves underemployed or not being able to collect their paychecks. Uh, the teachers faced many difficulties when they got there. The schools they were sent to were entirely under local control which meant, among other things, that the teacher's salaries were dependent on local support and fundraising. And remember that we're talking largely rural communities, so you're fundraising in cash-poor parts of the United States. Right? People don't have ready money to pay their teachers. And this pay is often given after service is rendered, so she can't take the teaching back if they never come up with the money. Right? She can stop doing it in the future, but there's no guarantee she will ever get paid for the labor she's already put in. The teachers landed in a wide variety of schools, from one-room district schools to subscription schools, which are basically, like, if I want to have a subscription school, I just open a school in my house and I send out letters being like, if you want to send your kid, it costs X amount of dollars, and then you pay me, and they come. Sometimes they're in female seminaries. They're offering, actually, like, high school or college-level education to young women. So there's really a variety. They entered communities torn apart by sectarian conflicts, unused to supporting schools, resistant to female teachers, and wary of Eastern teachers. And the women did not always find a great welcome. Arriving in Crawfordsville, Indiana in 1855, for example, Amiris C. Hudson was dismayed to learn that, quote, Yankee and sheet are synonymous terms in the vocabulary of many persons." End quote. So people were often not happy to have these Eastern teachers that Beecher assumed they would receive as gifts from New England. Uh, this is an article that appeared in a Christian journal written by a Hoosier, so someone from Indiana. Quote, we have serious objections to the plan of bringing teachers from the East to teach children at the West. It is a fact of which we have the most painful demonstration that persons from the East generally manifest the utmost contempt for everything that is Western. They come to the West expecting to find a class of persons but one degree above savage life, a people destitute of the first principles of knowledge and good breeding, and in many cases being really inferior to talent to very many of those on whom they look with contempt and ridicule. Uh, so you can see he's a little bit angry here, and, and, and seemingly justifiably so, right? Because if you think back to the rhetoric of those early Catherine Beecher quotes about women saving their country, that's an incredibly unflattering viewpoint of the West that this is built on, right? That you need New England women to come and rescue you does not speak well for how people are seeing you. And, and people in the West were not unaware of the fact that there was a very real prejudice against the West working in the very premise of the organization. To that end, some of the women had really difficult times. Beecher herself, by the way, would eventually come to realize that this whole shipping teachers from the East might have like cross-cultural conflict built right in. 
And that's why she eventually starts founding schools to train teachers in the West, right? Her Western Female Institute and the school that she founds in Milwaukee are essentially designed to like homegrow teachers. The teachers themselves, of course, also entered with a lot of prejudices. Many imagined Westerners to be illiterate, unschooled, and immoral. For example, when she arrived in Cassville, Missouri, Martha Rogers was shocked at how uneducated this community was. She writes, I have young ladies 22, 19, 18, and so on that can hardly read, and some whose parents cannot read. Unquote. Writing from Lexington, Missouri in 1852, Elizabeth Hill similarly laments, it seems impossible to rouse some of the pupils to any mental activity. The people here have prejudices against Eastern teachers and are suspicious of any new arrangement so that it is necessary to be very cautious and guarded in introducing any plan for improvement. To please them, one must use flattery and deceit. And the letters are filled with moments like this, where the women basically bash the communities that they've just arrived in. Right? And some of this was possibly true. Right? These are areas that may not have had schools. People really likely were illiterate. However, you can see how, if you viewed it as your mission from God to go and educate these people, Having this kind of mindset plays right into that, right? They need to need saving for you to save them, right? They, they need to be ignorant for you to enlighten them. While the education level in the communities could be shocking, some teachers saw in this a reason to be encouraged, right? It gave them hope for what was next. Mary Hitchcock, teaching in Princeton, Illinois, wrote, One could not help pitying them to see them so backward and yet so eager to learn because they have had so little advantage of schools. I have received several compliments telling how well they liked my school, that I feel encouraged through the assistance of higher power to persevere. Right? And we see that kind of built-in self-compliment in the way she sets this up. Right? I pitied them. They have no good teachers. Implicitly, you're welcome. I'm here. And the people are giving her the thanks that she seeks. Writing from Guntersville, Indiana, one of the few, uh, Alabama rather, one of the few teachers sent to the South, Abby Rogers sounds a similar note in 1852. Quote, my scholars are not as far advanced as I would find them at the North, but generally seem to have a good ability to learn and are very much interested and seem as easily influenced as any pupils I have ever had. I am often congratulated by the parents for getting along so smoothly as they, not realizing myself, is that it is anything unusual. There is very little good society here, though I find myself in an agreeable family. Right? One of the challenges a lot of these women faced is that teachers in the 19th century most likely boarded around, uh, which is what it sounds like. If there are 10 families that send kids to the school, she'd live a few weeks with each of those families. Right? It was one of the ways it was like paying your school tax in kind, right? letting the teacher kind of live with you for a few weeks. They also taught really diverse student bodies and potentially really large student bodies. Some of these letters mention schools of like 80 students, and she's the only teacher. So writing from Grand Haven, Michigan, for example, Lucy Bell says, I have a representative from about every nation English, Scotch, Welsh, Danish, French, Irish, Dutch, Indian, and African in one promiscuous assembly. What I find really interesting about this quote is that most schools in the 19th century, as you might have imagined, were not integrated. These letters are written to usually Nancy Swift. Beecher leaves the organization relatively early on because of a fight with Slade and a general feeling that like maybe this is misguided. Right. So as I mentioned, she starts founding those female seminaries instead. So they're writing back to their, essentially their like mentor teacher, right? They're writing to the woman who trained them to be teachers yeah. in these letters, which I think is one of the reasons they focus so much on professional concerns. Uh -huh. uh, they mention money a lot and how they're not getting what they were promised, right? Uh -huh. That was something the board was supposed to negotiate for them before they ever went. 
but there's no one to enforce it. And a lot of times, school trustees are just kind of whoever in the town volunteers to be the trustee. So sometimes those are people who are like deep custodians of the public good. And sometimes those are people who don't want to pay a lot of school tax. So people of very different levels of commitment yeah. to schooling are in charge of these women's work environments, are in charge of how much they get paid. Um, we're going to see when we look at the, the letters from that single individual in a little bit, um, they make her go without coal in the schoolroom because they're so cheap. She's teaching in Michigan in the winter. And she's freezing. And the children are freezing. Um, <laughs> and this definitely happens to some of them. They constantly talk about their health. Some of them are like, it's so much healthier, right? Like, I left the city and I went to the country and, like, now I can breathe. Um, but then some of them are like, you know, I really feel like I'm wasting away. My cough has come back. I'm going to be in a western grave. And we don't know whether they died or not because the letters would have stopped either way. They all only wrote back for a couple of years. So we don't really know how the story ends for a lot of these women. Kaufman tried to trace as many of these women as she could when she was writing Women Teachers on the Frontier. But a lot of them, we, we don't know what happened to them. I mean, that's always the hard thing about doing this kind of historical research, right? You only can know what your sources say, right? Another reason a lot of them may not have returned is because it's expensive to get back to the East Coast. So it behooved them to make the West work. Uh, the board paid for one visit home for a lot of these women. Like, they sent them back with the next class of teachers. But for the most part, they were really on their own. Despite the fact that there are a lot of challenges, they also really are resoundingly positive, despite how difficult this sounds from my 21st century perspective. Right? So there are all these moments where these women say, like, things are terrible. And then they wrap it up with, like, but it's good. It's good. God has it under control. Like, I believe I'm doing good work. I'm glad I'm here. This is Lucy Bell, who we saw earlier from Grand Haven. I have become much attached to my scholars and feel very anxious for them, and have the satisfaction to find that those who have been at any length of time members of my schools have a respect and regard for me, and that my influence over even my wild and unruly boys is more than when I first came among them. Right, so despite everything they're facing, a lot of these letters are intensely hopeful, filled with expressions of affection for the students, compassion for the communities that they're a part of. You get the feeling that one reason a lot of them didn't leave is because they really found what they thought they'd find, right? A really strong field for their labor, uh, a place where their work would be respected, if not always remunerated properly, uh, and where they felt like they were really doing what they set out to do. This woman's name is Martha Hooker. Uh, she's from Sackett Harbor, New York, and she taught in Geneseo, Illinois in 1852, leaving at the age of 25, and taught there for two years. She offers a really detailed portrait of what her school is like. So this is her letter from December 6, 1852. Honored Madam, it is evening. The labors of the day are over, and here in the sacred retirement of my own room I am seated to tell you my joys and sorrows, hopes and fears. The face of the country delighted me. One road, for the most part, lay over rolling prairies. Flowers still bloomed upon the prairies, giving them the vast appearance of a garden. Fields of corn were yet untouched by the harvest knife. She really likes it there, despite the fact that there's a lot of privations. She describes the houses by saying that the women are very hospitable, but the houses are not large, usually larger than 15 by 20. When she arrives at the school, it's two rooms and 50 feet long by 40 feet wide, which is pretty big given the size of the dwellings. Miss Curtis is engaged in the larger, in the lower room. So they like basically split up the pupils into kind of older and younger. Scholars began to come in, and in my room there was an average attendance of about 26. Then arose another difficulty. 
The room was furnished with two coal stoves. These were not large enough to make the room comfortable in cold weather, even with the supply of the best coal. But here it was winter, to all intents and purposes, and nothing to burn except for a little water-soaked wood. The girls shivered and coughed, and I was under the necessity of letting them gather around the stoves and wear their shawls beside. The searching prairie winds came in at every crevice. I contracted a cold which settled in my lungs. Sometimes I was tempted to dismiss school and go home and cry. Instead, she goes on like a campaign to all the trustees collecting coal from anyone she can get it from so that they don't freeze to death in the classroom. Then they take her money away, so then she's unemployed for a while. But she ultimately gets the job back. There's a lot of, I got fired, and then I got rehired in these letters. I think that most of them love me, and I know that I do them. They are before me whether waking or sleeping. Then she writes again four months later from that same school, and obviously it's still going on because she still works there. She's just had an examination of her pupils, uh, and they've made her principal, which is a really rare job for a woman at this time period. And she's kind of nervous about it because uh, she takes in this job, but she says, quote, I have not strength for the work. We have from 80 to 90 pupils, 40 of whom are in my room, whilst many more recite to me. I cannot get along without devoting at least seven hours each day to them because we have so many grades. My young ladies improve, I think. Uh, I have been able to win some of those who tried me the most. But the boys, oh dear, what shall I do with them? She's thinking about how this all sort of turned out. And she says, I think I desire to be useful, but I have thought that in my present state of health, I might do more in a family school or as an assistant in a seminary than in my present field. I do not regret coming here. Nor do I think that if I knew, in a few short months, I should fill a western grave. I think of home and love homes with a sigh, but I dare not wish myself with them. I love the board and everyone connected with it, yourself and Governor Slade in particular. I think that this is, um, this is telling, right? This is telling of the fact that these women really did enter this project with spirit, right? That they really did want to go and make a difference. And while it's easy for us to see their xenophobia as problematic, that their religious indoctrination, can be heavy-handed, I think they ultimately do what they set out to do, make a difference. And I think that the goals of the board always resonate with me, right? They set up these schools to teach morality and religion, to offer basic book learning, to build community, to assimilate immigrants, and to shore up the nation. This idea that schools are the key to our national fortune, our collective morality, and our individual success probably sounds familiar. We still expect all these things of schools today just as we have from their very beginnings. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, write a review on iTunes. It will help us add to the growing audience for Grading the Nutmeg. I'm Walt Woodward. We wish to thank Allison Speicher and the President's College at the University of Hartford. The President's College offers short, modestly priced, non-credit courses for adults taught by leading university professors and scholars. Find out more at hartford.edu slash President's College. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman and Patrick O'Sullivan. For more great stories about Connecticut history, including Connecticut Explored's spring issue about Connecticut and 
World War I, subscribe at ConnecticutExplored.org and purchase the winter 2016-2017 issue about Connecticuts in the American West. In our next episode, how Sam Colt sought mining riches in the Arizona Territory without setting foot west of the Mississippi.